always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Then we will no longer be immature like children. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. morning. Good to see everybody. We're in the seventh week of our marriage series. This morning, the final week. Um, the title of this morning's message is War and Peace. It's a commonly acknowledged phenomenon that marriages can be filled with conflict, with strife. Um, the average sitcom episode, if, there, if it's about a married couple, there's always, somewhere in the episode, some fight. You know, part of the plot is a fight. Fighting is, is part of marriage, um, and it's been this way for a long time. This isn't like a new modern American phenomenon. Benjamin Disraeli, the uh, British MP, middle of the 1800s, and uh, later prime minister, observed, no man is regular in his attendance at the House of Commons until he's married. And further observed, it destroys one's nerves to be amiable every day to the same human being. H.L. <laughs> Mencken, the American writer um, and journalist, said, Men have a much better time of it than women. For one thing, they marry later. For another thing, they die earlier. <laughs> and perhaps best of all, Groucho Marx put it like this, Marriage is a wonderful institution. But who wants to live in an institution? <laughs> and it's, it's a point well taken. Um, marriage can feel like more trouble than it's worth. It can feel like you're living in an insane asylum. It can feel like it's always strife. It's always discord. It's always fighting. It's always pain. I just want some peace. I just want to get away from this. So that's a really cynical view. You know, I mean, what, that, obviously the Bible would never talk about marriage in those terms. Well, take a look on... On your insert, passage number one, a couple selections from the book of Proverbs. From chapter 21, it's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. This is scripture. Or Proverbs 27, a quarrelsome wife is as annoying as constant dripping on a rainy day. Stopping her complaints is like trying to stop the wind or trying to hold something with greased hands comes across kind of sexist because it's a wife in both examples, but it could obviously be a husband just as easily. You know, a quarrelsome husband um, is, is like dripping on a rainy day. Better to live alone than with this type of strife. And if you talk about stereotypical gender roles for a second, what might be the, the more problem, more common problem with husbands is this issue not of, of being quarrelsome, but maybe just of withdrawing and kind of stonewalling, you know, not even talking at all. And again, it could, it could be the wife does one or the husband does the other. Usually, you know, one type of person is married to the other type of person. Um, you find yourself in these pairs where one person likes to be quarrelsome 
and the other likes to, to stonewall, and we'll talk about that in a second. Don't want to see any elbows flying during this message, by the way. Um, but you're either vacillating between this, this strife where you're just kind of always at each other or this, this tense Cold War piece where you're not fighting, but you're not really in harmony either. You, there's no peace. There's no true lasting peace. It's just kind of a, a truce. And you kind of swing from one to the other. And either way, you're alone. You know, it, the, the person who likes to fight is going to feel like, well, at least we're fighting. At least we're talking. And the person who doesn't like to fight is going to say, well, at least we're not fighting. But either way, you're alone. Gloria Steinem, the, the great feminist we talked about last week, said, the surest way to be alone is to be married. And that has been the experience of thousands of women and thousands of men. This vacillating between war and peace, but the peace isn't a true peace. And as we close this marriage series this, this last week, what I want to talk about is the path to true peace, to true unity, to true harmony in marriage. Not around conflict, but through conflict, through pain, the path to actually becoming one. That's the idea. That's what we've been talking about all seven weeks is this idea of two people becoming one flesh. Conflict is going to be a major part of that, but it has to be addressed in the right way. So three sections to this morning's message. First, the facade of fear. Second, the finer points of fighting. And third, the foundation of forgiveness. If you want to really have peace, unity, harmony, you have to tear down the facade of fear. You have to master the finer points of fighting. And then you have to discover this foundation of forgiveness. So we'll look at each of those in turn. Before we do, let's pray. Father, as we look this morning at your plan for conflict in our marriages, I ask that you would speak to us through Scripture. I ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would open our hearts and draw us closer to yourself. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. First, the facade of fear, tearing down the facade of fear. Take a look on on your insert, passage number two. We've looked at this before. Look at it one last time this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's before sin and then after sin. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. There is a type of person, there's usually one of these in every marriage, maybe two, but usually at least one, who um, doesn't like conflict. They like to avoid conflict. And they think of this as a sign of maturity on their part. They think of themselves as, you know, I don't like to make a mountain out of a molehill. I don't like to make a big deal out of something that's really not a big deal. I'm just, I'm an easygoing person, easy to get along with. We don't need to fight. It's just not a big deal. They think of themselves as being mature, being adult about things, not making too big a thing out of small things. And my suggestion to you this morning is that that person, the type of person, is not so much mature as they are just scared to death, just cowardly. So what, what are they scared of? Okay, okay, mister, well, you're playing psychologist now. What am I so scared of? What, am I so, what, is, what is it that's so scary about conflict? The thing that's scary about conflict is the same thing that was scary to Adam and to Eve, 
as soon as they figured out they were naked, which is the in conflict, in the, in the process of hashing something out, of talking about an issue, of getting to the bottom of it, you're revealed. Who you are comes out. Who the other person is comes out. And you might not like it. You might not like what you see. Adam and Eve, first before sin enters the world, are fine to be completely exposed to one another. And as soon as they're aware of their faults, as soon as sin comes in, the first thing they do is they cover up. And God comes looking for Adam, and Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid because I didn't want to be seen. So the nice thing about masks, about coverings, is that they're interchangeable. If you don't like the mask I'm wearing, I can put on a new mask. If you don't like the way I've covered myself up, I can change outfits. But if you're naked, if I'm naked, and you don't like what you see, then I've got a serious problem because I'm all I've got. I don't have anything else to give you. I don't have anything else to show you. And it goes the other way, too. You might not just be afraid of being exposed and not liking what you see in yourself or not wanting the other person to see you. You might, likewise, not really want to see them either. You, don't, you like the idea of them, fine. You like the, the surface of them, fine. But you know if you dug down deep, you really wouldn't like what you saw. You really wouldn't want to be married to that person. And so you stay away. You stay away from conflict. You stay away from the issues. You skim over them because you're afraid. The facade of fear. And the thinking goes, well, if we just kind of don't talk about it, it'll go away. If we just leave it alone, don't talk about it, it'll go away. No, it won't go away. It doesn't go away. Nothing ever goes away. This major issue comes up in the first year of your marriage, and you just kind of bury it, you know, put it over here. Well, then the same thing happens the second year. A new issue comes up. You bury that one, bury that issue. Third year, same thing. Fourth year, same thing. And all of a sudden, there are corpses everywhere in your marriage. You can't walk anywhere because there's dead bodies all around, and it's starting to smell. And this goes on year after year after year, and the relationship dies because there's nowhere you can go anymore. Because there's so many buried issues. There's so much beneath the surface that you're afraid of, and you've just covered up. Like Adam and Eve, you just covered it up because you don't want to face it. It doesn't go away. This idea of letting sleeping dogs lie, it doesn't work. And you're going to be married to this person for 30, 40, 50 years. What's it going to look like in your 30 or 40 or 50 looks like loneliness is what it looks like. It looks like bitterness. All these unresolved issues that have gone unaddressed because of this facade of fear. So the first step to resolving conflict in marriage and having a true union is just admitting that there is conflict. Admitting there are problems. And there will be problems. Elizabeth Elliot, a Christian writer, defined marriage as a long-term, intimate all-inclusive, no-holds-barred, day-to-day, and year-after-year commitment between two sinners. I'm a sinner, and I'm married to a sinner. And if we're both sinners, if I'm imperfect and I'm married to somebody that's imperfect, there are going to be problems. And to act as though we can just smoothly sail along without ever having any hitches is totally unrealistic, totally inconsistent with what Scripture teaches, and will lead to a relationship that eventually shrivels and dies. So first, this facade of fear has to be torn down. You have to be honest. You have to be open with your spouse. And that's scary. It's scary, but it has to be done. Everybody needs one person with whom they can be absolutely and totally honest and open and share everything with. You don't need more than one. You just need one. And that person's supposed to be your spouse. And if you are holding back, if you are failing to give your spouse that openness and that honesty, you are robbing them of something they desperately need to be whole. 
And you're, you're keeping them from doing the same because they can't share with you until they trust you. And they can't trust you until you open up to them. So first, tearing down the facade of fear. Second step in reaching true peace, harmony, union, after you've torn down the facade of fear is mastering the finer points of fighting. You're going to have to fight. You just have to learn how to do it. The first point is, is uh, directed toward one type of person, and the second point is directed toward the opposite type of person. They're basically two, two types of people, skunks and turtles. A turtle, when a problem arises, pulls back into its shell, withdraws its head, leaves the situation. A skunk, when a problem arises, sprays indiscriminately everything in sight, trying to wreak havoc. Usually, usually skunks marry turtles. It's usually the case that you find yourself with the opposite type of person. So for the turtles, you have to conquer your fear. For the skunks, you have to master the finer points of fighting. There's a fair way to fight, and there's an unfair way to fight. If you have this tendency to lash out, what you can do is use conflict in the marriage as an opportunity, not not to work things out, but as an opportunity for combat, as an opportunity to attack the person, not the problem, as an opportunity to inflict wounds and pain. You're a good fighter. You know how to hurt people. You know the type of things you say that can really make them feel it. And you've got to limit yourself to certain types of phrases, certain types of conversations, certain types of approaches, and other things have to be off limits. Ephesians chapter 4, the next passage on your program, talks about this. Paul writes, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Then we will no longer be immature like children. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. So, first observation is that he assumes there's going to be conflict. All this language about be humble and gentle, making allowance for each other, keeping yourselves in peace, speaking the truth in love, assumes there's going to be conflict. Not only does it assume there's going to be conflict, but it assumes it's going to be emotional. Be angry, he says, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. So there's a way to be angry without sinning. There's a way to get worked up and a way to work things out without sinning in the midst of it. What is that? Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So he talks about being angry and not sinning and putting away from yourself all these qualities that are going to make the fight go bad. And I want to focus on this one term, malice, which is kind of all-inclusive. Put away from yourself all malice. Be angry, work things out, but put away from yourself all malice. What is, what is malice? Uh, it used to be, it's no longer, there's been some legal reforms, but it used to be that first-degree murder, the requirement for first-degree murder, to be convicted of first-degree murder, was the prosecutor had to show that the murderer had, quote, malice aforethought. Malice aforethought was the requirement to be convicted of first-degree murder, and the idea is you had to kind of hate the person. You had to, like, premeditated, you had to think, I really don't care about this person, and I'd rather they be dead. 
Malice is this disregard for the other human being, this treating them as subhuman, this treating them as less than yourself, exalting yourself over them and saying, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me what happens to you. Talking in a way that whether they're harmed or not, you act like it doesn't, doesn't really bother you one way or the other. I, I have a list here of, of seven forms of malice, which I know that's kind of seven, geez. You know, we barely get through three points every week. But I want to run through these kind of quickly. Um, see if any of these stick or if they remind you of yourself, if they're familiar. Seven ways that malice, this disregard for the other, shows itself in the middle of a fight. The first is comparing. This is totally off limits. You're not allowed to do this. This is malicious to say, well, so-and-so does this for his wife or his husband. or so, You know, so-and-so doesn't do this. Malicious. You're treating the person as sub human. You're not respecting them as a human being. The second is condemning. This idea of you should be ashamed of yourself. I can't believe you did that. I would have never done that. Standing as judge over your husband or over your wife. You're not their judge. Jesus even said, I didn't come to condemn the world. Only God judges. Your spouse, your husband, your wife will have to face God on judgment day just like everybody else. You don't need to stand there in the interim and play God. Condemning. You should be ashamed of yourself. A third form of malicious speech is commanding. You stop that. You don't do that. Stop it right now. You're treating them like a child. You're acting like you're the authority figure, like you're the policeman, like you have the right to tell them what to do. You're treating them as subhuman. It's malicious. A fourth example is challenging, issuing some sort of threat or ultimatum or dare. If you don't stop this, I will do blank. Or if you, if you don't do this, then I won't do this. It could be, it's, it's something as big as, you know, I'll leave. If you don't do this, I'll leave. Or if you do do this, I'll leave. Or it could be, you know, something that has to do with, you know, money. I'm just going to spend this or I won't spend this. Or sex, withholding sex. All of these are forms of blackmail in the marriage. Challenging, malicious, treating them as the enemy. Treating them as somebody that you can try to control and manipulate. And then there's just straight up blackmail, which is, you know, sharing a secret. You know something about your husband or your wife, and you say, if you don't do this, I'll share X, you know, actual blackmail proper. A fifth form of malicious speak is condescending, speaking in a condescending way, talking down to your spouse, acting like you're somehow superior. And there are a lot of different ways to do this. So one way is to try to, um, quote, reason with your spouse. Like, the way you're feeling is just irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Well, you're treating them like they're a child. You're telling them what to feel. It's condescending. Or to, to play psychologist. You know, the, way you, the, the reason you did that, the reason you said that was because this. This was your motive there. You're telling them who they are. It's very condescending to say, I told you so. Incredibly condescending statement. To say, you wouldn't understand. Why? Because I'm not smart enough? Because, you know, I, I'm not like you? I don't think like you? Why wouldn't I understand? Condescending. Or an, this, is, this is one that I'm especially guilty of. Um, acting like you know you're right and you're just waiting for them to come around. You know? um, I, am, I am a smart, insightful person. And I am usually right. I, I'll just say that. I'm usually right. I'm not always right. And I d- I'm not God. I don't have the right to assume that I'm right without proving it. And sometimes... Sometimes, infrequently, I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong. And to assume, to assume that I've got the truth on my side, just waiting, you'll come around to it, you know, just, 
You know, well, I, I know it's right, but you'll get there eventually. Condescending, incredibly condescending. It's malicious. You're treating them with this level of respect that's not appropriate for another human being. A sixth form contradicting. No, that's not what happened. No, no, that wasn't right. Just flat out contradicting a statement they make instead of saying, well, my perspective is, or I see it like this, contradicting. And this, the worst is when you know, you're with a couple and they're doing this to each other in front of other people. You know, you're telling us, so we're, we're going on the highway at 45 miles. No, it was 35 miles an hour. And, well, whatever. And then we came up to the you know, red light and, and they just keep contradicting each other and everyone feels so awkward. And you know, I'm, they all start thinking, I'm glad other couples do this too. You know, because everybody struggles with this contradicting one another. It's malicious. You're treating the other person like they're less than you to just flat out contradict one of their statements. And then a seventh form of malicious speech in fighting is deliberately confusing. Bringing up an unrelated issue that really doesn't have a lot to do with the fight at hand, but you're losing, and so you start throwing up smoke screens. You know, you talk about this or that, which, which doesn't relate at all. Or you, you're losing in this time zone, so you go to another time zone. You talk about something else that happened a long time ago that really doesn't relate at all. Confusing the issue. What do all of these have in common? All of these have in common this idea that the, the point of a fight is for me to win and for you to lose. That this maliciousness is treating your spouse like an enemy. Treating your spouse like somebody that you have to be victorious over because you're more important than they are. Malicious. Malicious. Trying to win. Trying to conquer. Trying to come out on top. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to fight this way in a marriage because a marriage is two people coming together as one person. If you win and she loses, guess who lost? You did. She wins and he loses, guess who lost? She, she lost. It's one person. It's one person. This idea of cutting off your nose to despite your face. You can't win. You can't win without losing. There's no such thing as winning without losing. And this conquering over the other, this trying to, treating them as the problem, rather than attacking the problem collaboratively, is always going to set you back. It's just as bad as the facade of fear because now, instead of hiding from your problems, you're using your problems as an opportunity to, to attack one another, to tear one another down. And there's unity, harmony, peace is going to get further and further and further away with this type of approach. So mastering the finer points of fighting, and it's a, it's a long process, means learning to say, okay, there's some things that are off limits. When we fight, there's some things that we don't do. There's some techniques that we don't use. We won't speak maliciously. And the opposite of all of these, just as kind of one general positive principle, is to use I statements, to talk about yourself. I feel this. When you said this, it made me feel like this. I see it this way. I realize you see it this way. I realize your view is legitimate. I see it this way. Talking about yourself rather than standing up above them and commanding, condescending, contradicting all these malicious forms of speech. So if you're an avoider, if you're a turtle, you have to tear down this facade of fear. If you're a skunk, if you just spray indiscriminately, you have to master the finer points of fighting to stop using conflict as an opportunity for combat. And then the third and final step to peace and harmony in a marriage is discovering the foundation of forgiveness. The foundation of forgiveness. You identify the issues, you, you get real, you open up, you talk about stuff, and then you, you fight in a fair way, you hash stuff out in a productive way. And then third, once the issues are identified, once they've been hashed out, 
guess what? You're still going to be two imperfect people, and you have to forgive one another. And, you know, that forgiveness sounds like an easier or harder thing, depending on, I guess, what type of thing you're talking about forgiving. So I can think of, like, three different levels of conflict or pain within a marriage. The first level of tension would just be really superficial, you know, roommate stuff. Um, George Bernard Shaw said, a marriage is a union between one person who likes to sleep with the window open and one person who likes to sleep with the window shut. And so that's the first level, you know, just this, this simple stuff that still can be grating, still can be um, something you have to work through. I'm, I'm not recommending ignoring that. But forgiving in those areas, oh, I forgive her for liking to sleep with the window open. Well, that's, that's pretty easy. You, know, you just accommodate. Second level down is not just this roommate type stuff, but these, these areas of habitual sin, these things that you, you do wrong and then you, you apologize and then you do them wrong again, and you apologize and you do them wrong again. And that's a little bit harder to forgive. Um, I, use a, I use a sharp tone with Brittany a lot less than I did the first year we were married. I still use a sharp tone with her. She still has to forgive me. She still has to forgive me. And she's still going to have to forgive me for it next year and the year after that. It's harder. These areas of habitual sin that even though you make progress, they don't go away. And then there's, there's a third level down, even, even deeper than that. This, um, these just areas of, of, for lack of a better word, dysfunction, deep woundedness, addictions, these problems in your, the depths of your soul, these ways that sin has grabbed onto you that when you got married, you could have never suspected in a million years that your spouse was that messed up, that they had that much wrong with them on that level. You could have never suspected it. It's a whole different level. We're not just talking about problem with temper. We're talking about a seething anger that's been built up over years. It's not just you know withdrawing sometimes, but throwing up these, these stone walls that last for months at a time. It's a different level. How do you forgive that? How do you forgive that sort of thing? The, you know, the, the marriage vows. Our forefathers did not have their head in the sand when they wrote these marriage vows. You just don't know. You don't know what the person you're going to marry is going to be like 30 years from now. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. I pledge to you my faithfulness. You don't know. It could be better than you dreamed. It could be worse than you ever imagined. How do you forgive that level of stuff? How do you forgive this stuff that is causing you so much pain you feel like the only answer is to get out? How do you forgive on that level? It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to recommend it. But how do you do it? That's the reason that I am a pastor, not a marriage counselor. It's the reason that instead of just handing out those books at the back, which I think are good, we also still have service. We also still lift our hands in worship. We also still pray. We also still take communion. I don't think that you can do this without God's power. I don't think that you can even have the, the, the courage to overcome this fear of exposing yourself. I don't think you can have the restraint to keep from lashing out. I don't think you can find it within yourself to forgive without the power of God in your life, without experiencing God's forgiveness first. And that is the New Testament's position. The New Testament always links the ethical behavior of the believer with what they've received already from God. Take a look on the back of your program, or on the back of your insert, at passage number four. Notice where, where St. Paul, lead, what he leads with here, and then where he goes with it. 
He starts with, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Having said that, then he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The consistent message of the New Testament is you have to experience the love of God, you have to experience the forgiveness of God before you can extend that to anyone else. It's only experiencing that. It's only having that wash over you that will give you the strength and the power to return that to somebody else. I, I typed in forgiveness this week um, in Google. And the second link was a, a page from the Mayo Clinic on forgiveness. So I thought, this, this is interesting. I want to see what this says. So I clicked on the forgiveness page on the, the Mayo Clinic website. You know, they've got pages for all these different maladies, um, most of them physical. But here's a, here's a page on forgiveness. So first it talks about the benefit of, benefits of forgiveness, the importance of it, you know, lower blood pressure and you know, less, less chance of disease and all these things. And then it, it talks about how to forgive. And, it, and what it says is, I, w- I should have printed it out, um, it says, well, you, you just got to think about how bad your life is by not forgiving. And when you're ready, you just actively choose. That was the phrase that I really liked. You just actively choose to forgive. Just actively choose to forgive the person that's hurt you. And then it says you may even experience compassion and understanding. So it's in this FAQ format. So that's the, you know, how do I forgive? That's the answer to that one. And the next question is, what if I find it difficult to forgive? And the answer on the Mayo Clinic website is, you may want to pray or talk to a pastor. Well, here you are, talking to a pastor. What any good pastor would tell you is that you have no chance of forgiving until you've experienced the forgiveness of God washing over you, until you have seen what it costs God to forgive you. It's, you know, people sometimes say, why, why is Christianity focused on um, this bloody, gory death scene as the center of its religion? I mean, how morose, how kind of antiquated, why would you focus on that cross I saw the, the passion. It's disgusting. You know, it's, it's, I don't even want to watch. Why would you focus on the blood? Why, why would you meditate upon that? What's the, what's the point of that? This song we sang earlier, just earlier this morning, gracious and astounding, his love so confounding, appears to us in a cleansing flow of blood. Why focus on that? It's because it, until you see what it costs Christ to forgive you until you see the lengths to which God went to forgive you. You'll never be able to forgive your husband, your wife, your friends, your kids. You'll never be able to forgive until you see how much it costs. But when you see that, when you see what Christ went through for the sake of your forgiveness, when you see what it cost him, then all of a sudden it clicks. Then all of a sudden a, a switch flips in your heart. And it well, oh, if he did that, if he suffered like that for me, if he forgave that much, and it costs him that much, I guess that I can probably forgive too. Jesus tells this 
remarkable story in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Peter comes to him and he says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Peter is, it's this classic um, goody two-shoes example where the, the Pharisees said you've got to forgive three times, which is, was seen as a really high standard three times. And so Peter's trying to seem like super religious guy. And Jesus, should I forgive seven times? And Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? And he tells this story. He says there's a king and there's a servant. And the servant ends up racking up like an unsurmountable amount of debt to the king. You know, millions of dollars. And the, he won't pay. And so the king, you know, has his you know, guards go out or whatever and say, you know, we'll sell him into slavery, sell his wife and kids into slavery, sell all his stuff, pay off, pay off the debt as much as he will, and then throw him into prison. You know, until he, he pay, pays off the rest. And the, the servant goes to the king and throws himself down on his face and begs him, you know, weeping, please, please, just give me time and I'll pay it all. And the king is moved. And so not only does he give him time, but he says, I, I forgive your debt altogether. It's forgiven. Um, you don't have to pay. So the servant gets up and leaves. And he goes out to a man that owes him like $1,000. And he says, you've you got to pay me. And the guy says, I don't, you know, I don't have it right now. And he grabs him by the neck and says, you've got to pay me. You have to pay me right now. And, he, and the guy doesn't have any money, so he throws him into prison. He has the, the guy that owed him $1,000 thrown into prison. And the servants of, some other servants of the king watch this happen. And so they, they run back and, and tell the king, you know, the guy that you just forgave, we saw him throw a guy into prison for owing him way less money than he owed you. King calls him in and says, um, yeah, nice try. Misery is the rest of your life. You know, throws him into jail without any chance of repayment. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. That sounds really harsh. It's not a one-off statement. On the back of your program, passage number 7, he says this repeatedly. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Or in Mark, but when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Your own forgiveness is conditional upon your ability to forgive others. Or to, to flip it around like we were just saying a minute ago, you won't be able to forgive at the same, until you, you accept that, that God has already forgiven you. Until you let this sink into your soul. So what, is, what does forgiveness really mean, by the way? Is it just, you know, what, just saying it or, or saying, you know, I'm, I, I won't, like, hold this against you? What does it mean? There's this phrase, um, I, I can forgive but not forget. And that, that phrase is, is meaningless. Henry, Henry Ward Beecher was this uh, famous preacher, 1800 Civil War era, at a church in Brooklyn Heights. And he has this, this good line, I can forgive, but I cannot forget is only another way of saying I will not forgive. Forgiveness ought to be like a canceled note torn in two and burned up so that it can never be shown against one again. And that's the type of forgiveness that God offers us. Passage number five on the back of your program. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of a special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever. Because you delight in showing unfailing love, once again you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet 
and throw them into the depths of the ocean, you will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love. You have to be able to do that for your husband or for your wife if you're going to have true union, if you're two people becoming one. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, had this line, marriage, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. And that's true. It's not just tearing down the facade of fear and opening up. It's not just learning to fight without being malicious. But it's learning to forgive. It's learning to let it go in the same way God lets it go. Like a canceled note. Not excusing, not saying they didn't do what they did, but letting it go. Canceled note. You have to be able to do that to have peace and harmony in a marriage. And it's only possible if you first experience the love of God. Let's pray. I'm going to lead us all in a prayer now, and you can just pray along with me the parts that apply to you, just silently. God, first of all, you know how afraid I am. You know how afraid I can be. You know how much I hate the idea of being totally open and honest, of uncovering these issues that have been buried for so long, of exposing myself, of letting myself be seen. God, for the sake of my marriage, I ask that you would give me courage. I ask that you would give me your courage. You would help me to tear down this facade of fear and expose myself to my husband or to my wife to be who I really am. And God, you also know the way that I'm prone to attack my spouse instead of attacking the problem. The way that I use fighting as an opportunity to inflict wounds. I ask that you would take the anger and the malice out of my heart. I ask that you would fill my heart instead with gentleness, with humility, with graciousness. I ask that you would help me to stop speaking the truth without any concern for my husband or for my wife, but rather to speak the truth in love. And God, finally, you know how hard it is for me to forgive. You know how hurt I am. You know how much I want to make them pay for what they did. Please, Help me to experience your forgiveness. I ask that your forgiveness would wash over me so that I can have the strength to forgive my husband or forgive my wife. God, I know that I can't do this on my own. I ask that you would come into my life, live in me, and give me your power. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my forgiveness. Amen.